This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Sergio Lopez Pinheiro, and I interview authors on how the portrayal and use of emptiness and allied concepts, such as voids, nothingness, or limbo, in philosophical, political, religious, and social studies are influenced by the imagination and construction of physical space. Today, I'm talking with Kearney Campbell about the book Empty Spaces, Perspectives on Emptiness in Modern History, a book that she edited with Allegra Giovini and Jennifer Keaton and was published by University of London Press. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today, Kearney. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so as a way of, of starting, could you, could you introduce yourself to, to our listeners, please? Sure. My name is Courtney Campbell. I am an assistant professor at the University of Birmingham in England. My official role is assistant professor in Latin American history. So I'm a Latin Americanist by training. I, my research focuses mostly on Brazil, 19th and 20th century Brazil, but I teach broadly on Latin America and also on global history. I'm originally from the United States. You can probably tell from my accent. I'm from Michigan originally, but I lived a long time in South America as well, mostly in Paraguay and Brazil. Wonderful. Um, so the, the, the book, Empty Spaces, which you edited with um, Allegra Giovini and Jennifer Keaton, uh, the book, it says, uh, I quote, the contributors argue that spaces which are considered empty are just as important to the social production of space and landscape across time as those which are remembered, celebrated, or memorialized. And moreover, that empty spaces have had a crucial role to play in the creation and dissemination of a wider set of historical ideas about nation, empire, territory, community, and self, end of quote. Could you tell us a little bit more about the book and the essays it includes? Sure. Um, I'll start with explaining where the book came from. Um, all, of, all three of us, uh, Allegra, myself, and, and Jen, we were postdoctoral fellows at uh, the Institute for Historical Research in London, which is housed within the School of Advanced Studies of the University of London, uh, along with Will Pooley, who's currently at the University of Bristol. And we, um, uh, in this, as postdoctoral fellows within this institution, we each had to give uh, a presentation on our research. Every week, we 
we met on, I think it was Fridays and, and, and had to give a presentation of the research we were working on. And uh, we noted at one point that we all, all four of us were somehow addressing spaces that, that were written or considered or narrated as empty in some way. And that this emptiness justified or, or manifested um, uh, the, the ways that the nation or the colonizer or, or whatnot were, were thinking about these spaces. And so we sat down and talked about what to do with this. And, and uh, we applied for some funding. We put on a, uh, a one-day event in which um, several people presented on their work related to the theme of empty spaces. We received some really fascinating um, proposals and, and papers. And then um, we, we put together a workshop in order to refine these a bit and pull them together into an edited volume. Uh, in, in the end, it was uh, Allegra, Jen, and I that put this together. And um, it was a wonderful team to work with. Uh, we, we really was, you know, there's a, edited volumes can go a couple of ways. And, and it was really, really great that a really wonderful team. And, and really in the sense that when one person um, was maybe sidelined by something else, uh, somebody else stepped in. In fact, we finished the introduction while I, we put the final period, I think, on the on these paragraphs when I went into labor. So <laughs> I really needed somebody to step in in the copy edit phase, for example. So we, we, uh, we really shared this work together. Um, the chapters are really uh, varied and, and, and approach this idea of, of emptiness in, in different ways. Uh, how, we, how we tried to organize it is that the, the first four chapters kind of look at ideas of, of emptiness in air spaces or in territories uh, in the 19th to, to early 20th centuries. Uh, there is a there's a chapter by Kevin James on um, barrenness and abundance in in, uh, in Ireland and West Ireland. Uh, there's a Jen's chapter, Jen Keating's chapter is on Central Asia. Um, Leone Schuster has a, a chapter on aviation in Brazil. Trisha Trisha Kusak uh, her chapter looks at um, the Empire Marketing Board posters and their portrayals of, of uh, the ocean. Uh, Emily Burns' chapter, which um, has received a, a, quite a bit of attention, is on Edward Hopper's representations of Paris is empty. Um, Martin Walter looks at um, uh, post-apocalyptic fiction, so he looks at The Walking Dead and Survivor, I believe. And uh, Cristalia Camvasino and Sarah Ann Milne's um, their chapter is looking at vacant space in London. I think their chapter reminded me most of your work, Sergio. Uh, and, <laughs> and then finally, um, Kenneth Brophy, who comes from quite a different angle. He has, he's an ar archaeological approach, uh, looking at prehistoric enclosures, um, but, but really looking, focusing uh, in on the modern uses and, and perceptions of those, of those enclosures as well. So, uh, you know, a really varied a set of, of chapters looking at emptiness in, in quite different ways. But I think we were able to pull it together uh, in, in a way that, um, uh, that that made it not just a bunch of disparate ideas about emptiness, but rather 
um, showing how emptiness is, is shaped and used and, uh, and what it shows us. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the book very, very much. I particularly really enjoyed uh, Kenneth Brophy's uh, chapter. I thought it was, I thought it spoke to me in like in, in very interesting, very interesting ways. Um, so I think that one thing that I wanted to, to, to ask you is that the, uh, the book aims to put forward the need for the study of emptiness and empty space as part of spatial history in general. This is something you explained in the introduction. And then specifically as part of the so-called spatial turn in uh, of the recent past. And so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about this for the, for the audience. What is a spatial history and how is that different from historical geography or anthropology or architectural landscape, urban history, number one? And number two, what is this spatial turn and how does the, the book fit within it? So uh, I might give a particularly not satisfying response to this question, but it's Spatial history, to, to put it briefly in short, is, is a way of examining the uses of space or conceptions of space, how we use and appropriate and experience and pass through spaces throughout history. Uh, so in a way, it is uh, a method in which a historian who is used to working with time, right, with the passage of time, a historian really focuses in on, on intersecting time and space together, right? And how our ideas about space also change along with our ideas of, about time. Uh, it is both different than all of those, uh, the other disciplines that you mentioned, and also really similar to and, and, and crosses over with. Um, this book is, is very interdisciplinary. In, in nature, I spoke with Allegra and Jen uh, to make sure that I'm representing the volume correctly. And I said, what do you want me to say in this? And, and they both really stressed the interdisciplinarity of it. And um, so it's, it's very interdisciplinary. And in that way, spatial history is almost inherently interdisciplinary. It crosses over a lot with human geography. For example, you mentioned how is it different than human geography? And there are times when it probably isn't. Um, but I would say essentially where spatial history and human geography are different is in their historiographies and in, um, in the way that the disciplines progressed. So human geography being more tied to sciences had a tendency for an extended period of time, particularly through the 50s and 60s, I'd say, uh, of becoming very statistical and uh, numbers-based and quantitative, while spatial history tends to veer further away to the more um, qualitative side towards social history even. Nowadays, though, they, I, I think they cross over a lot more. You still see in human geography more of a tendency to, um, to take advantage of technologies that exist, for example, um, that perhaps most historians aren't trained in, uh, or quantitative methods that we tend to veer away from. But, but the focus itself, there, there's a lot of uh, human geography now that is looking at cities, for example, and uh, sustainabilities in cities, environmental issues uh, related to cities. And, and, and these, this isn't a, a places where you'll see spatial history um, over, overlapping quite a bit with human geography. Uh, anthropology, architectural and landscape and urban history, I, I would say 
they intersect with spatial history. Uh, when we talk about spatial history, there is at least one chapter in this book that is an urban history. Um, uh, the Cambesino and, and Milna chapter uh, would be an urban history, looks at the history of, of spaces that became kind of voids, uh, urban voids, and were reappropriated um, uh, so in, in London. So, you know, the, the, it can, you can have a spatial history that is an urban history, and you can have a spatial history that has a particularly anthropological uh, bent to it, for example. Um, the spatial turn, the spatial turn is a bit of a, again, a, a tricky concept because the spatial turn is what's bringing us closer to spatial history in many ways. It means in a way it's just the turn towards things, all things spatial about questioning our relationships with place and space. Um, but it also tends to have a uh, a really strong relationship with the idea of um, GIS and uh, mapping and, and these technologies related to mapping. Uh, so there's a spatial turn that's kind of crosses over with a digital turn or a digital humanities. But uh, so it can be a bit, it can be a bit tricky to separate those out because that's obviously not what we're doing in this book. We're not, we're not as interested in, in using those technologies as methodologies. We'd be more interested in studying them as, as uh, subjects. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, since this is an edited volume, uh, I wanted to ask you questions a little bit uh, more in general about the theoretical frameworks that uh, you present in the introduction of the book uh, of how emptiness is uh, defined and, and framed. And then through these broad questions, maybe we can talk and bring up some of the essays in the book as specific examples or conditions that can help better understand the issues surrounding empty spaces. So the, the, the questions are going to be general, but feel free to, to use any of the essays as, as, as material to, to talk about this. So I want to start, I want to start with the very first quote that you use in the introduction of the book. Uh, the introduction of the book is called Confronting Emptiness in History. And the quote is by J.B. Hartley. And it says, I quote, there is no such thing as an empty space on a map, end of quote. So very bluntly, does emptiness exist? Yes, it does. And no, it doesn't. Um, Great. Yeah, Great. it's like all of my answers so far. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes, it exists and that it's it's a... It's a discursive tool. Uh, it's uh, it's something that we use to uh, to justify actions or or that shows different processes that are that are in play. So it, it exists in that we recognize it and we look at it and we name it. And once you name something, it exists. Um, and it it doesn't in the sense that once we we recognize emptiness, then we notice that we've already filled it with meaning, and it's not actually empty at all. Uh, so when we're talking about emptiness in these texts, in, in some ways, in some ways, we're not talking about the real absence of matter, right? It's, right, right, but, right. but more about, about ideas and concepts around emptiness and, and how it's being created or invented and described. And, and so, yes, it exists in the sense that 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 it, you know that that we name it and people people have 
perceived it as such, right? Um, and that is real. Our experience is real. Our perceptions are real. Um, whether or not they uh, stand up to, you know, academic scrutiny or, or not. Um, and, and no, and that uh, uh, everything is full of meaning. So this is, this is a very interesting question to me. So in some ways, um, one could say that the, the authors of the different texts in the book, their, their, their mission is to, is to reveal all of, all of the elements and all of the meanings that are generally um, left outside of those spaces which are categorized as empty. Um, by some power at B or by some community or institution. So there's a kind of is there's a kind of recognition of that of that naming of emptiness and the and the and the people, the meanings, the stuff that has been left aside in order to construct an emptiness. So in some ways, the the process of and this I think happens with the majority of the text in the book. Uh, it's a, it's a question of deconstructing or eliminating or 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 filling up that idea of emptiness would that be fair maybe <laughs> <laughs> i know i'm the most evasive person um it, yes it, it it is in a way that that we are trying to say look they might have been saying that this is empty um but it's not really empty Mm-hmm. So, th- so mm-hmm. there is a bit of that, uh, you know, m- recognizing somebody else's misframing or misjudgment. Um, though I don't know that it's always intentional. I want to make that clear too. But, but I do hope that I do hope that this collection, that the individual articles, and and that the collection as a whole moves beyond simply, you know, pointing a finger and saying, "Haha, you were wrong. It's not really empty." Um, but, but instead, showing that what the purpose of that discourse of emptiness was. Uh, what purpose it served, or, or rather, or perhaps more important, what processes it manifests, what we learn from that process of, of creating emptiness and of describing emptiness and, and, uh, and recognizing that it's not actually maybe as empty as, as some might have thought or might have wanted people to think. Um, I, think I think, for example, of um, Leonie Schuster's article, on uh, the on aviation and the Brazilian nation, she's looking at um, Edu Chavez's cross country flights in 1912. So Edu Chavez had these uh, attempts at at going as far as possible, and and the idea that he's that he is not just not just filling the airspace considered empty, right, with a with a plane and 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 cross cutting it then with these with these paths, right, that the, the airplane flies on, or even filling the, the airspace with hope of, of some kind of technological event and, and, and uh, progress. But also that he's, he's connecting cities and, and parts of this, you know, Brazilian territory that is seeking modernity in the early 20th century and trying to, trying to really express its, its modernity. Um, and part of what through most of the 20th century is felt in, in Brazil that is in the way of that modernity are these seemingly empty or sparsely populated territories of the hinterlands that you have to get through to connect these modern cities together, right? 
And in a way, Edu Chavez, his, flight, his flights are getting rid of that. Right? They're, they're, he, can, he can fly over these, these empty spaces that aren't empty. They're, they're full of people. They're full of agriculture. They're, they're full of um, stereotypes <laughs> and, and, um, and, and meaning that, is, that has been placed upon them by, by federal governments and, and, and by the nation. Uh, and considering them empty then has repercussions. It leaves people behind. It, it frames whole regions or places as obstacles. It, uh, it devalues uh, one place in, in comparison with another. So I, I hope that we, that we move beyond just saying, you know, these places aren't empty. Uh, you were wrong, but instead to move to, to, to show why it's important to recognize that and, and what we learn from it about, about uh, mostly about modernity progress, ideas of modernity, ideas of progress, um, and, and the spread of imperialism, capitalism, and nation in the 20th century. So um, you, you, you argue in the, in the book, and I think that the title makes it very clear, that, um, that um, and I'm quoting actually from the intro, emptiness is not the lack of physical or imaginative content, but rather a condition that grants value to the modern spaces discussed in this volume and of quote and in another in another sense in another sentence you say uh, empty spaces then become a lens a metaphor a foil or tool for working through the anxieties of modernity can, can you ex can you talk a little bit more about this uh, which I think is a follow-up of what you were saying and you were you were just like talking about and you were using uh, Leonie Schuster's um, uh, text as an example of of a of a, of a of a modern, uh, of the construction of a particular modernity. So what we're, what we were getting at there is, is that um, when we're looking at emptiness, we're not just looking at, a, at physical emptiness, but rather um, using that emptiness to try to understand other processes. Um, if we look at, for example, um, uh, Jennifer Keating's contribution, on um, Central Asia and and um, uh, imperial history, um, she looks, for example, at desert landscapes and and mm -hmm. how those desert landscapes might have been perceived of as empty, but really they they what that meant, uh, particularly within these imperial histories, was was a, a threat, right? That that you had to get through those areas um, that were characterized by, by dryness and by erosion, by disorientation, um, that it was a challenge to the empire to, uh, to get through these empty spaces. And so um, these, that narrative then um, is a way of, of trying to understand the actions of Russian imperialists. Um, And so, uh, no, please go ahead. Or when we look at, for example, at Emily Burns, who looks at, at Edward Hopper, at his paintings and, and this um, seeming emptiness, right? The, the lack of, of, of people within it. Um, but, but she points out that, that, that's, that emptiness is actually carefully constructed. Um, and it's a... Uh, um, a, a construction of, of solitude. It's a, um, 
a symbol of anxiety about um, uh, about uh, the the artistic study abroad, about his time abroad, about um, uh, his time in in a space where where uh, French artistic um, expression was was valued uh, more than than his, <laughs> um, and. Uh, so, so you can use that emptiness then, and instead of focusing in on that emptiness, we're, we're actually learning more about the artistic experience. So that's what we mean by, by using it as a lens or as a metaphor or as a tool for working through these different anxieties of, of modernity. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So in that, in that context... Um, the book, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it focuses mostly on Western modern history. And so is the understanding and use of emptiness that, that the book puts forward, um, exclusively Western or would we, uh, would, would something change if we were to take into account other, particularly East Asian, um, East Asian case studies? That's, you know, that's a really good question. And. And I think uh, one that, as you as you uh, subtly point point out in in the question itself, one that this this volume uh, itself doesn't address and and can't answer uh, because because of because it is um, focused mostly on on Western narratives. I suppose um, there's you know there's the Central Asian perspective too, but but for the most part, it's it's focused on Western narratives. So. Uh, it's a good question, and I think one that points out that there's more work to be done in this area, and a lot of space for more work to be done. Um, because I, I would I would like to know that, <laughs> and particularly I think also um, another area that we that we don't have in this volume that is missing is uh, Africa. There's no mention of African history in in here at all. So that would be another area that I think. Um, we could learn a lot about and, and about notions of uh, emptiness and what um, what what they might have served in in Africa or if it was perceived differently. 
I think I think it would illuminate uh, another uh, the understanding of the mod- of the modernity of the modern process in these regions of the world in a completely different in a completely different way from the one that we are we have come to understand that we have come to stereotype stereotyped within the West. Um, so one one thing that I am interested in. Um, and you you talk about in the introduction of the book. You say that the concept of emptiness is is internally defined. It's in, inherently relational. Always things are always uh, emptier than something else, and that's uh, uh, the that comparison is something that we use in order to talk about the emptiness, or in order to define the emptiness of some particular uh, place or location. But but the thing is that the, the aesthetics of emptiness are in some ways, externally defined, or at least they are externally clear to everyone. We have, we, we're, we're mostly across cultures, um, there is a there is a some general understanding of how emptiness looks. And so the, the content uh, of emptiness, how it is defined, doesn't transfer or travel well, um, but the containers, of emptiness, how emptiness looks, transfer extremely easily. Um, so we can all identify emptiness very, very quickly. So is this is this question part of the problem in the in the use of emptiness or in the mischaracterization of spaces as being empty? Uh, what what are your thoughts about this interaction between the social construction and the aesthetics of of emptiness in the in the use of the concept? Oh, it's a that's a really good question. I think, I think, I I, I first I, I want to sit a little bit on the idea of it being relational and also of it being uh, culturally defined, because for example, one of the images that we that struck us in the beginning there was an image of a uh, from Jennifer Ke- Keating's research of a camel on the steps somewhere, and. Um, the idea being that this this landscape was long viewed as being empty, but that very clearly there isn't there is an animal in that picture, right? There's there's something there in this in this photograph, and and I think it's an example of of how what one person might look at and say there's nothing here. This is a no man's land. This is empty. Another person might step in and say, this is some really rich soil and territory. This is great for agricultural production. Look at how animals might thrive here, right? So it's, uh, there is some some value being placed on, uh, being placed from our own cultural perspectives, right? From where we're coming from and and what we see as productive or not. or as in, in the, the chapter by Kinvesson and Milner, what, what they're looking at is, are these urban voids that are then taken up by um, different uh, countercultural movements in, in the 1970s in London that are using these spaces in ways that weren't originally imagined for them. So in a way, these spaces step out of the capitalist uh, notion of a space needing to be productive, needing to do something right for society in a certain way, in a certain urban way. And instead they become, uh, something else. They become refashioned, um, in in different ways. So, um, 
so there is, you know, there is a construction there of, of emptiness and, and that is going to, you know, one person's emptiness is another person's paradise, I guess. <laughs> but, but yes, it's true. And representation and the way that we represent it, it does seem rather obvious, right? If you're drawing a map and there's an empty space on that map, then we are thought to, uh, our, our initial thoughts are that that space is empty. And, and the quotation about there are no empty spaces on a map then become re- becomes really important because even that empty space on the map means something. Uh, there's a fantastic article in Past and Present. Oh, I'm not going to remember the title off the top of my head, but it's on mapping the Black Plague, uh, the Black Death, I'm sorry, in, um, and, and how there's a map that, uh, the person, that, that an area of the map was left blank because there wasn't data. But because that area of the map was left blank, it has been assumed and a narrative was constructed off of this one map to say that there must not have been, uh, there must not have been a lot of deaths from the plague in that area, right? When really all it meant was there was no data from that area. So, so these, these empty, these depictions of emptiness or, or these blank spaces on maps, on, um, in memories, uh, in narratives, uh, in, in landscapes, they might signify emptiness to us, but that, sig- that significance might be off, might be wrong, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So could, could, is, there, um, is there any moment when, I mean, we, we, we tend to think then in this, in this kind of situation, um, that emptiness is always a result of some kind of, um, can I say, negative process or, or like a lack of attention in some cases um, or like a, 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 some kind of exploitative or colonial attitude or a, a lack of data. But is there any moment in which we could, or is there any moment in which you think that emptiness can be constructed from as a result or from, as an output of an actually like a positive process. And I'm using here negative and positive in a very generic, very oversimplified, maybe not even useful manner. But I find I find that there's always like this output that is not, um, that, that seems to be like a missed opportunity of some kind. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I guess in a way it's inherently negative as a negative space, right? We're, we're assuming some kind of lack or void. And so... There, there is that sense of negative. Um, but when we think, for example, about, uh, I think the Edward Hopper paintings are oh, one example in which, in which the, that which is missing is actually, is being constructed to signify uh, or to show a f- feelings and emotion about a place. Um, and, and so that is kind of a positive insertion of something, even if those feelings, you know, weren't positive, it it is a, you know, it's an add on the emptiness is being added. It's not something being taken away. Uh, and I think in in that sense, the Canvissinal and, and Milna, our, uh, chapter also are a way of, of showing kind of a, a positive use of empty space, um, and the, the Brophy, uh, chapter that you mentioned, also does I think does quite a bit in that in that sense of showing um, how spaces that are that are empty become places of interaction of social interaction even 
Um, I, I think, and I'm going off the volume here, I'm a little bit outside of the volume, but you know, this volume was, was published uh, a, a few years ago. And a lot has changed since then in the world, particularly in the last, you know, year and a half or so. And, and I think going back to this volume and thinking about it, I think about how our notions as a society of emptiness and what that means um, have changed. When there's a, a really fantastic um, archive of COVID, uh, the COVID archive, it's basically called, I think, that's um, being curated out of Arizona State University. Um, uh, Katie Cole Pedalta works on it. Uh, and that's how I know about it. And, and uh, it's an archive in which, you know, an open archive where you can just go in and, and upload any kind of document or um, source that you think shows something about COVID, right, about this experience of the pandemic so that there's an archive of it in, in the future. And a lot of the things that are being uploaded are emptiness. They are depictions of empty parking lots. I uploaded photos of a of the empty parking lot outside of the mosque down my road and and their sign that says that that there are no services because it's usually a very busy full space. Um, uh, there are images of empty toilet paper shelves and 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 empty airports. Uh, people are uploading to Facebook all the time empty airplanes that they are on. And and so how this idea of emptiness has changed for us now and and um, what it so what emptiness means then is going is is changing according to you know our, our voyage through history I suppose and um, and there and the meanings that we place upon that for example so you know the the emptiness of of uh, the toilet paper shelves we would see as something, you know, negative as people hoarding or, or whatnot. But, but maybe the emptiness of other really public spaces, other people might have been uploading to show uh, that people are following social distancing rules and, and following quarantine rules and that they might have thought of that as a positive thing. So um, I guess what I'm getting at here is that is that even when it might seem that these ideas about about emptiness might be somewhat universal, they're changing, and they're not they're not fixed. I think I think that this is a very interesting um, uh, question uh, in terms of I wanted to ask you. And this is not. I think that you don't you don't touch upon this uh, in the book, but um, you you talk about space as a social construct in constant transformation. And you're arguing right now that emptiness follows uh, not a not a dissimilar process. It is also a social construct in constant transformation. And so, uh, in the same way that we have come to understand the role of preservation of space in specific contexts and manners, and these these ideas of preservation change, is there is there any way, or should we be talking about the preservation of emptiness in a similar manner, since we are since you make the argument in the book and you're describing it now with this example of, of emptiness, the COVID emptiness or the, the desertification of spaces through the pandemic and the lockdown, should there, there's emptiness is also a social construct. Should we be like preserving some of this emptiness in some particular way? Hmm. 
Uh, I suppose whether we should or not, we are. Uh, we're, we're <laughs> in which way? In which way? That's interesting. Well, in which way? In, in the sense that we are, we're documenting it. And, and, and so it's being, you know, preserved in that sense that it's, it's documented. We're experiencing it. We're writing about it, um, about these, this feeling of emptiness. Uh, but in, in the same way, I guess we fall back on that first question that you asked me of whether empty, whether anything really is empty. Um, and I, I would say that what we should, uh, perhaps, perhaps hold on to is, is that these spaces might look empty, <laughs> but are they really, and what do they mean and, and what is their purpose and what, it, and what is it serving for us? Um, but I, I also, I think it depends on what you mean by preservation. So I think I have to turn that question back to you, but what, by what do you mean by, by preserving it? I, I was actually talking more, more very concretely about, about material preservation of of uh, of actual spaces where there are gardens, buildings, uh, urban plazas, statues, monuments, memorials, uh, archaeological digs, uh, prehistoric artifacts. There is there is a there is a clear understanding of some of such spaces as something that defines a very specific social construct that is worth. And that is valuable and that is worth preserving and maintaining in some way uh, in order for people because they, they, they are in, they're an insight into one specific way of living with each other. And so I, I, I wonder if there is such um, if there's an equivalent uh, regarding um, emptiness that that we could that that exists. I mean one could say that there are like you know, particular, I don't know, uh, deserts that are defined as natural reserves. But in that particular case, you're obviously, uh, I don't think that you are preserving emptiness. You are preserving the ecosystem and the, and the, uh, and the cultural associations uh, or, or native cultures that, that, that took place in that specific Land and so you're not presenting it as empty. You're presenting it as something that is full of something that is valuable to be preserved. And so again, it's presented as a kind of spatial construct, construct with particular characteristics that need to be that need to be maintained. But emptiness, as such, because I think it's I think that there's like an inherent negativity to it. I think in many cases, I wonder if there's like I I I, I wonder if there is such thing as preserving the emptiness or if that would be counterproductive because it would be a way of preserving a certain ignorance or a certain um, um, framework, powerful framework that, that displaces and discriminates certain communities, people, artifacts, ways of understanding. I I suppose that I suppose it depends on because you know empty of what is always the question, right? Is it is it is it devoid of sound? Should we have should we have quiet spaces, for example, that are empty of sound or or devoid of of people or of buildings or of traffic or of cars of industry? Because I think in a way when we're, when we're looking at this book, we're talking in so many ways about about, again, modernity, about ideas of modernity, ideas of industrialization, of capitalism, of urbanization, 
So is what we're saying that we need some space that doesn't have all that stuff in it? And, and in that sense, I think we do that a lot or we try to, right? We, we have parks and, um, uh, or, or, or some other kind of things like that that obviously aren't empty. Nothing is, but they, they're empty of something. And, and I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's really important. I think one thing that Brophy's chapter, again, makes me think of is, is busyness, right? Um, a, a space that isn't busy or that's only busy with, with human engagement with other people in, in some kind of genuine way, whatever that is. Uh, I think, you know, so, so yes, I think that, I think in a way, trying to preserve, preserve some, in, in all things, right, I, I guess you can use, uh, you can try to use the same tools um, in, 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 a, in a way of resisting um, this, this process, this constant process of dehumanization within which we live in the modern capitalist world. Um, and, and one way of doing so might be in, in retaking those narratives of emptiness and trying to reclaim those empty spaces in a way that serves our serves um, us to find us some calm and and a space in which we don't need to be productive. I think that sounds like a really wonderful uh, way of encapsulating uh, a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the texts that that, that included in the book uh, included uh, including Brophy's and and others. Um, I wanted to to ask you as as a way of of ending the the interview. What are, what are you working on right now? Is it are you continuing this this work uh, in some fashion, or have you moved on to other to other questions? Oh, so um, I, I I don't know that this work will ever leave me. <laughs> but, uh-huh. Okay, great. But Good to know. but but in but in much different ways. So I I have my book is coming out um, on the Brazilian Northeast. It's called region out of place, the Brazilian Northeast and the world, 1924 to 1968. That is coming out with University of Pittsburgh Press um, next year. And it's looking at one of these, you know, I, I might have gone on a bit about Brazilian landscapes uh, because that's what I work on. And the, the idea of the Brazilian Northeast, of course, is that it's um, that it was kind of the shoe in the or I'm sorry, the stone in the shoe of of Brazilian modernity um, and, and industrialization. It was more rural, it was poor, it was dry. Um, migrants were leaving it in a way that makes it seem like it's emptying out into the nation. And, and so in that sense, uh, you know, I, I work with that, the idea of how, how the Northeast became an, a cultural identity. So how people became Northeastern, but I'm looking at it um, uh, as not this isolated empty space, but instead a place that really uh, that was very much embedded in the world and interacting with different um, countries and different international events. And that it's through these events that it, it is defining its identity. So in, in a way, there's some crossover in that. Um, and I'm, I'm moving on to a more global history, gender history and global history. Uh, one of the projects I'm working on right now is, is um, uh, global history through biography um, or a, a rather through historical memory looking at, um, yeah, a, a German-Jewish communist woman named Olga Benario Prestes, who uh, uh, left Germany, um, went into exile in various locations, eventually in the USSR, 
received military training, was assigned as the bodyguard of the Brazilian Communist Party, or the, the head of the Brazilian resistance, um, Luis Carlos Prestes, went over to Brazil, supported um, the Brazilian communists in their revolt in 1935, was caught, <laughs> uh, deported back to uh, Germany and uh, uh, incarcerated pregnant. She gave birth in imprisonment um, and eventually was, uh, was murdered by the, by the Nazis in, in, in an extermination camp. But I'm not really, as much as the story is about her, what I'm, what I'm trying to look at is the, these global historical processes uh, in, the, in the early to, to mid 20th century related to World War II, but also anti-fascism and how important Latin America was in this global history, even though it's often sidelined uh, through, through the life of Olga Benario Prestes. Uh, and also through her memory, she is widely remembered in Brazil, but, but often forgotten in West Germany, for example. And I think that forgetting is, the act of forgetting is very similar to looking at our emptiness, right? These, this is an act of forgetting. This is active um, forgetting. So, um, and uh, while within East Germany, she was much, she was much more remembered. So that is what I'm turning to. I should also mention that Jennifer Keating, um, who was one of the co-editors on this volume uh, and wrote a brilliant chapter within it, her book is also coming out next spring. It is On Arid Ground, Political Ecologies of Empire in Russian Central Asia. That's coming out with Oxford University Press. Uh, and my last thing I'd like to mention is Allegra, uh, Allegra Giovini, she's moving on to information sciences. Uh, and she very much uh, wanted, loved your glossary of urban voice. And she wanted me to make sure to mention that to you. So <laughs> that's very, very nice. Thank yeah. you very much. When do you, I didn't catch, when do you say that your book on Northeastern Brazil is coming up? It's next uh, year? coming out, yes, in April next year. It's already available for pre order. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, this was great talking to you and like breaking down a little bit more about the wonderful book that you edited with Allegra and Jennifer, uh, Empty Spaces, Perspectives on Emptiness in Modern History. Thank you very much, Courtney, for your time. Thank you, Sergio, for inviting me. I appreciate it.